Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. For those of us who may have thought after the pyrotechnics of the impeachment trial that a quiet week was in store, well, guess again, it's been a week of significant fireworks focused on the Department of Justice and Attorney General Bill Barr, which has undertaken a series of actions that drew a firestorm of criticism from all quarters and especially former federal prosecutors. Much of the most intense criticism came from regular participants on this show, who authored a fusillade of op-eds and tweets calling the events a four-alarm fire, the worst moment for the department since Saturday Night Massacre, and characterizing the department's reputation as on life support. By week's end, the criticism was so intense that Bill Barr, who is more or less from the never complain, never explain, never apologize school, sat for an interview with ABC News in which he took the president to task for the president's meddling tweets, which he said, make it impossible to do my job. And the president already has fired back and asserted his right to continue to tweet. So get ready for another gallop through a series of important and in some ways stunning developments, mainly from the department. And we have just the four horsemen, if I can include myself here to lead the charge. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. I'm in Los Angeles with three returning feds. First, Professor Lori Levinson, who holds the David W. Bertram Chair in Ethical Advocacy at Loyola Law School, where she's also director of the Center for Legal Advocacy. Lori was a longtime federal criminal prosecutor and supervisor here in L.A. and a longtime expert commentator on prosecutorial practice. Welcome back, Lori. I'm so glad to be back, Harry. Second, Todd Purdom, who joined us recently from Washington, D.C., where he sat through and it wasn't easy, I'm told, the entire impeachment trial. The former White House correspondent for the New York Times, Todd now resides here in the City of Angels and writes some of the country's most trenchant political commentary for The Atlantic. Welcome back, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here, Harry. Thanks. And I buried the lead, as they say in journalism, because not only are we in Los Angeles, we are inside the offices of Congressman Ted Lieu. And not only are we inside the offices of Congressman Ted Lieu, we are in the office, God knows how we rate this this time, of the congressman who, as most people know, represents California's 33rd congressional district in the House of Representatives and whom we have the honor to welcome back to Talking Feds. Congressman Lieu sits on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He is also a former active duty officer in the U.S. Air Force and a current colonel in the reserves. Ted Lieu, thank you so much for hosting us and returning to Talking Feds. Thank you, Harry. Honored to be on this podcast. All right. So let's focus first on the Stone debacle and its aftermath. Let's put it this way. I mean, there's a, a lot that went down on both sides and we'll try to discuss, but just isolating it, was it so bad? And why? You know, are all the feds, and I was among them, being, you know, too alarmist, even sanctimonious? Or was this really uh, something like a capital offense for the Department of Justice? 
You know, I try to step back and get an objective view of what's going on, even though I was a federal prosecutor. And Harry, it was that bad. I mean, it's perfectly fine, I think, for the Justice Department, main justice, as you would say, to keep an eye on what's going on in high-profile cases, to engage in the discussion. But once the prosecutors have actually filed their sentencing memo with the court, to then go back and say, just kidding, they don't have authority— I think that that's pretty unprecedented. I think and, it's, by the way, in my experience, completely unprecedented. Right. And and I think that when you have prosecutors who, as happened here, out of integrity and conviction, just quit. And I thought that was the right thing to happen. That's a message in itself. That's plain politics. And even though the president is saying, I didn't tell them to do this, the timing kind of tells the whole story. The timing, by the way, the tweet is... In the evening and the um, revision of the memo, the sort of three-page, tissue-thin, not very well-reasoned revision of the 26-page memo happens the next morning. So as bad as everyone's uh, saying? Yes. I'm a former prosecutor, and regular Americans don't get special breaks from prosecutors. And in this case, if you happen to be a friend of the president— you get special treatment. And that is exactly what makes so many Americans angry at what they see in Washington, D.C. It is a swamp that Donald Trump promised but failed to drain. And this is the perfect embodiment of it, where you help people who are well-connected or wealthy, and they get special favors with the Department of Justice that nobody else gets to have. I think it's also worth noting, Harry, that these aren't trivial offenses that Roger Stone was convicted of, despite what the president would have you believe. He was convicted of lying to Congress, tampering with witnesses. And remember, at one point, he posted online a picture of the judge presiding in his case with a bullseye on her face. So this is he's, this is a guy who really was showing contempt for the justice system and to be cut some slack at, as you say, at the 11th hour in the point in the process where the memo was in. And it's actually, my understanding, and I'm not a lawyer like the rest of you, it was following the, the stated guidelines of the Sentencing by Commission the and book. all the... It was by totally, the book, right? Totally, you know, the prosecutors were doing what they're supposed to do, which is to present to the court, based upon the facts, how the guidelines would work here. Now, everyone acknowledges the judge gets the final say, but it does matter what the prosecutors present. And, you know, I think this whole week brought up the question of what's the role of the attorney general to do the president's bidding or basically allow our Justice Department to do, as the congressman said, the American public's bidding. In fact, if you believe Donald Trump's words that he didn't tell the Justice Department to do this, it's even worse. Mm. Because usually yeah. when their president says jump, his enablers say how high. In this case, they jump before he even told them to do so. So you have a Department of Justice here who's actively trying to help friends of the president. And that's just something that shouldn't be done because that's the very nature of corruption where you help people who are connected and wealthy, and ordinary Americans don't get the same access. And, and then the president follows up with insults of the judge, of the jurors, of the prosecutors themselves. So just in case you thought that maybe this was an accident, this was <laughs> something that fell through the cracks, no, 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 this was really a targeted attack. Yes, and also, Laura, your point is well taken. This wasn't some runaway judge who who convicted Roger Stone. It was a jury of 12 of his peers. And, I mean, that's a kind of sacrosanct 
thing of Anglo-Saxon justice that you're judged by a jury. And for the president to sort of, it's one thing for him to second guess some official or an FBI bureaucrat or whatever, but to second guess the result of a jury trial of American citizens is really a very, very strange kind of thing for the president to be doing. Yeah. And and by the way, so first it's by the book, as Todd says, it's also the same recommendation is adhered to by pretrial services and probation. But, you know, as Lori well knows, when you go to trial, when you put the DOJ to the proof, it's almost a given that you're going to get at least a guidelines sentence. That's the minimum for how it works. And just one other thing to add insult to injury here, there are serious crimes, and there are serious crimes having to do with the investigation of the president himself. So, I mean, Trump shouldn't have been within... 10 miles of this in any uh, respect, and that he was, you know, weighing in and, as you say, you know, vilifying the personnel. Okay, so it seems, in fact, of all things, to have maybe gone too far, even for William P. Barr Jr., who sat for this interview last night and seemed to be, well, well, what did you guys think of it? On the one, just reading the words, he's pushing back, Trump's tweets make it impossible to do my job. He's, you know, suggesting that, as you say, Congressman, they had no communication, but, you know, that begs the question, so what the heck is he doing already meddling in a pedestrian or a made sentencing determination? Were you surprised to see him, you know, a little bit abashed or trying to push back? And did you find his account persuasive? I kind of thought that the attorney general wanted it both ways. Basically, he wanted to be able to do the president's bidding because that's what he did, but send off the public message, I'm really independent. And then today, we get even more information that he's going both ways, which is he's doing a special review of the Flynn case, but they dismiss the case against Andrew McCabe. So he's giving sort of this projection that, oh, I really am my own man, but his actions have spoken very differently, and I think they continue to do so. You know, it is politics all the way. That's how you see it. So you were, this was just political CYA by him. Although, again, he's not somebody who, know, he, he's normally, uh, you know, but it's a clear. barge through guy. Yeah, but I think it's, I mean, look, I want to give him credit for pushing it back against the president. I think that's the right thing to do. But I think the proof that this was all worked out with the president is that the president didn't blow up in response. You know, he had a mild tweet back today. But clearly, in my mind, before Barr went ahead and did that interview, there was probably a preview of this coming attraction for the president, which is, this is for the good of everyone. It'll slow down the controversy. I've got to go to Congress and testify. We'll have this to use to say that I'm independent. Believe me, the right approach to do. I agree with Laurie. I think actions speak louder than words. And what happened here basically is Trump spoke the quiet part out loud. But in terms of actions, the attorney general, in fact, did have his department overrule the line prosecutors and have a lower sentencing recommendation than the initial one. He did privately ask for another review of the Flynn case and, and other cases. Uh, he took the Mueller uh, findings, completely perverted them in a memo to everyone. And so his actions, I think, speak the loudest. And I'm on the House Judiciary Committee. I look forward to uh, questioning him in March. 
I was just going to say, Harry, that I think it's a measure of the unusual lengths to which he's gone and the cynicism that that's provoked, that the immediate reaction to his words, which on their face were quite strong and stirring, and if they'd come, you know, at face value from anybody else, would have in fact been a really stinging rebuke to the president. Everyone assumed the fix was in, and this was some elaborate kabuki dance that had been worked out in advance. And and I, I must also say, I mean, again, not a lawyer, not a prosecutor, but I have to believe that the morale in his department was at the absolute ebb tide, and he had to do something to maintain a shred of credibility leading his department in this really a sort of a crisis. Because if he hadn't, I think, you know, there might have been even more resignations, really kind of mass disruptions in the functioning of the of the Justice Department. I mean, you did hear in the... And or this might have happened to you in the former prosecutor community that maybe there was a whole rump movement coming. Though two things about his his speech. I, look, I, I also want to give the devil if that's what it is his due. And he did come out and say it and try to make some kind of statement for the rule of law. But two strange things about this statement. The first is I've been both at Maine and in a field office. It is more than strange. That the, at, you know, what, what Barr was describing was a whole series of conversations at his level that were going on concurrently, but separate from what the AUSAs were doing. What is that? That's not what right. the uh, main department is, is supposed to do. Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, the fact that there's no coordination, that in itself talks volumes yeah. about what's going on here. But actually, I think a big problem here is whatever his message was to the public, he should have apologized to those prosecutors. Yeah, well, and this is the second thing, to follow up on Todd's point. Uh, the interviewer asked him, so, you know, what about the prosecutors? What about the resignations? Have you spoken to them? No. How can you be the you know attorney general coming forward hearing about this and not actually even want to be attending to the, you know, obvious deep, deep concern? I mean, a resignation, right? A huge deal. It, that you know, doesn't like, happen all the time. If like, the public thinks that people storm out of these jobs, they don't. They're very committed public servants. And as you said, Harry, you hit it on the head, which is how demoralizing for people who are there day in and day out because you know the jokes are already happening. We're already hearing of defense lawyers saying, I want the deal that you get if the president tweets for my client. Or judges who say, well, is this really your recommendation or what will it be in the morning? When you start undercutting the credibility of process, prosecutors, eh, that's a bad thing for everyone. So I am surprised by Barr's statements about Donald Trump's tweets in the sense that what you see happening is really the end result of Barr's theory of maximum executive power, right? His view is essentially the president can't commit obstruction of justice because the president is the law. And under his view, the president would be able to not go after criminals and protect his friends because all a prosecution works for the president. So that is Barr's theory, and it leads to these really absurd results where, in fact, you're protecting your friends and going after your enemies. Uh, but this is the end result of Barr's maximal view of executive power. And, and what most people would say when they look at that is it ends up in corruption. It's following yeah, the whims of exactly one man. Yeah, which is exactly what he didn't say, right? What he basically says, it makes for an awkward situation. What do I do now? There was no sense of the substance but but just the uh, the difficult sort of PR problem of having the 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 president having weighed in right really a seismic effect I think to have those resignations and then we we have in the wake of that they announced immediately after 
that Andrew McCabe, who had sort of initiated the 2016 investigation of the president, whom the president has been furious and insulting about in tweets, and whom they'd let dangle slowly in the wind, they were finally going to take a pass on and say he was no longer in criminal jeopardy. Was that coordinated? Is this a part of an overall PR effort to sort of rehabilitate the reputation of the department or just two things happen in the same time? Uh, you know, I tend not to believe in amazing coincidences. <laughs> and the timing of this is at least a bit suspicious. Maybe those hearings will get to it. But my guess is they've been working on this for two years. Was it just that today they came up with the resolution? Or had they made sort of this decision or a likely decision and thought, well, this could be useful to release it? I mean, I, obviously, it's great for McCabe. But my guess is that they could have at least made this announcement at some earlier time. And why they didn't, I don't have that answer. But then hours later, they took away with the other hand what they'd given on the McCabe question by announcing, Attorney General, that they would have a special independent review of the prosecution of the former National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, and other unspecified sensitive, and in some cases, perhaps non-public pending cases. All in in that same office. All in that same U.S. Attorney's office in in D.C. So I I don't, your head is spinning like, uh, you know, (laughs) which is the message here? That these things are decided on the merits, or we're going to make one symbolic gesture about McCabe and then equally give some red meat to the president by saying we're going to go review the Flynn prosecution. I don't believe that timing is coincidental, Uh, but we did know that it was always going to be hard for them to go forward with McCabe ever since last year when they had problems getting the grand jury to do anything as publicly reported with regards to McCabe. And so it was pretty clear back then that they really didn't have their evidence on McCabe. Yeah, I mean, it looked like the grand jury said, either we're not going through or gave him a no true bill. On the other hand, that was what, nine months ago? And they let him twist, twist slowly in the wind. And just to be the devil's advocate here, I'm sure it's true that there's some triage for a problem office, but that's a real gesture. I mean, substantively, a guy who, uh, who Trump dearly hates and had been under, you know, um, indefinite peril, is in fact breathing deeply today. I mean, they're taking some concrete actions to try to show they're they're cleaning up that office. But I I think probably what the grand jury was reacting to is it's very hard to see why uh, Mr. McCabe, who was the deputy director of the FBI and authorized to talk to the press, would have lied about oh, talking yeah. to the Wall Street Journal about that. It's a very hard case to prove. And, and I think that's one of the concerns, which is, yeah. as you know, Harry, it's not that hard to have, you don't even need any evidence to start an investigation. So if you have a Justice Department that is sort of po- politically motivated, they can start investigating all sorts of enemies. And they don't have to release a clearance at a particular time. It destroys people's lives. They can't move forward. And if you have the president sort of making an enemies list, that's particularly of concern. So you had mentioned Jessie Liu earlier. Uh, there is no indication she did anything inappropriate. Uh, she is now uh, out of a job. Uh, she having, resigned completely. Correct. Having uh, her nomination get pulled, apparently for other reasons, which is why I think you see Hope Hicks coming back to the White House because they can't can't get anyone else, right? People see the treatment of people who work for the Trump administration, how badly they're treated, and they have huge problems getting anyone who want to serve. That's why they have to uh, bring in people like Hope Hicks because other people won't do that. That's really interesting. I mean, we certainly do know 
we hear anecdotally, and I think probably, Lori and I have heard, like personally, but just at, uh, anecdotally also, of real m- misery at the uh, career level within the department. Um, all right. Well, look, somehow this was all tied in together. And there's a lot of other things that just happened this week. I, you know, I just want to list them. You said how easy it is, Lori, to open an investigation, and it is, but not in Bill Barr's Justice Department if it has to do with politics. And the, the FBI has now been disempowered from even opening an investigation. Anything that might have to do with the election or a donor or whatever, that's going straight to Bill Barr's desk. And remember, the basic goal here is to make it look that there's no politics. So that's why typically you would want to keep it in the career ranks. But we have that announcement. We have what happened with Flynn just after Jesse Liu was ousted. We have this odd feature in my old office in the Western District of Pennsylvania, which is open for business to receive the opposition research, the crazy opposition research of Rudy Giuliani and the Ukraine stuff. They've laid out a kind of a welcome mat for that. And then just the Jesse Lou Alster in the first place, I guess I'd say, you know, discuss, I, I, you know, among those, <laughs> which, if any, seems pernicious and which may seem like no big deal. Well, you know, I I do think it's appropriate to at least create a system yeah. for how cases are going to be handled. I mean, part of the problem here is that I think there probably was a lot of triage going on. There was a system of how the Justice Department has always acted, and now there's the Trump times where it doesn't seem to be a system at all. But it turns out that everything, if you wanted to, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but if you wanted to, all of these also have in common how much they protect President Trump. So, you know, on the Roger Stone thing, one of the reasons to really get a significant sentence on him is to give him an incentive to cooperate if he has information to provide. And to make it look all the worse if the president should pardon him. So part of what the president is doing by getting the sentence reduced is to say, well, it really wasn't that big a deal. Right. It's paving the way. Right. Um, On the Lou matter, I mean, to the extent that you're going to have any confirmation hearings where information can come out on any appointments... That goes by the wayside if you have a nominee who drops out. And then if explain you, that a little bit more. Well, I'm trying to think do I have the right name here for the yeah, Jesse second Liu. Jesse yeah. Liu? Wasn't yeah. she up for She was nominated. I think she was actually nominated for to Treasury be a, Post. For associate, no? Or for another one and then they they moved her to Treasury. But right. when she but that was, was gonna be a confirmable that, post that too. Was so say, she was. So my point, but they could have kept her there and she wouldn't have had no, nomination. But hearings. my point was is that to the extent that she was marching towards a confirmation hearing and all sorts of questions can get asked at a confirmation hearing, if those make the executive branch feel nervous, that's being shut down. And now her replacement at the U.S. Attorney's Office is an interim, right? So it won't have a confirmation hearing. And then- right. And then Finally, just that direct, you know, the only person who can really handle this is Bill Barr. Get it all to Barr's desk. Well, the one thing we know about Barr is he's the one who's in regular communication with the president. I think people lose sight of the value of career prosecutors who don't want the politics, who can evaluate things without worrying about the tweet. That's what's getting lost in this whole thing. So here you you gave a litany of yeah. items uh, that all seem inappropriate, and you see the breaking of norms. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it happened uh, after the impeachment acquittal. And Senator right. Susan Collins said that she <laughs> believes 
Donald Trump learned a lesson, and I believe the lesson he learned is that he has a quivering mass of jello when it comes to Senate Republicans, and they're going to remain silent, and he can do anything he wants. And what you see now is a president unleashed who's just going to go ahead and uh, do whatever he thinks he can get away with. Well, and what's so striking, Harry, for a person who covered the White House 25 years ago, Bill Clinton chafed day in and day out at Janet Reno's Justice Department and at Louis Free's FBI. But the one thing he knew he couldn't do was try to meddle with them. He, he was, had both hands tied behind his back because he knew the minute he tried to do anything like that, the uh, establishment of Washington, the press, the judiciary would come down on him. And I think we just see another example, as the congressman said, of, of Trump's breaking every normative standard of behavior. And, yeah. and let's not forget that during the Bush administration, when there was the firing of the U.S. Attorney's Office, there was a real uproar. In 2006, there, after exactly, the midterms. Exactly. Yeah. There were Senate uh, hearings from the Judiciary Committee. There was a lot of press coverage. And we do recognize that a president does have the right to appoint or, you know, change his U.S. attorney. But when that had the smell of politics. Right. But now I think the congressman is exactly right. There is not any reaction by the Republicans at all to when the president crosses those norms. Now, I do believe that this is taking a toll on the president in terms of support from American people. If you look at four of the last five national polls, his approval rating is around 41, which is very low for an incumbent president. And several points lower than it was, ironically, during the impeachment trial. It's like that Gallup poll of 49% seems to be a bit of an outlier, anyway, though. That's yeah. never, But he's never had, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, he's never had a day in office in which he had majority support. Yeah, I think that's right. Just a quick follow-up to both your points. The first is, yeah, when the Jesse, to me, of this list, the Jesse Lou Tim Shea move where one day she gets a call and, and pack up your office, that really stank of the 2005 firings and because it, it seemed so clearly to be paving the way for, you know, Tim Shea, who I don't think is a, a, a you know, Matthew Whitaker or whatever. <laughs> I don't think he's a total, um, uh, Stu, this might Stu, be the word, just the right? word you're looking for. But, but, <laughs> but nevertheless, he's totally a bar Rosen guy. So that gave me some real pause. And then to Todd's point, I was also, I was in the fourth floor of the Department of Justice, starting from the Vince Foster murder. And I mean, the Vince Foster suicide. And there, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> watching, yeah, yeah. appearing on Fox News too much. Yeah. Um, and, um, Absolutely right. I mean, not only was it completely out of the question, but it was the department that was in charge. If Janet Reno, the, excuse me, if Jamie Gorelick, it wouldn't have been Janet Reno, the deputy, or Phil Hyman, you know, just pushed gently back on White House counsel, they would run scurrying. It was totally understood. You, you couldn't go near this line. And now it's, you know, we're in Alice and we're through the looking glass. Well, you know, the U.S. attorney scandal, Laurie, that you brought up about in the Bush years, it's worth remembering that one of those, that was a Karl Rove project to try to install U.S. attorneys that were considered to be more sympathetic to Republicans who might actually actively investigate Democrats. And one of those interim appointments in Arkansas was Tim Griffin, who had been, he's now the lieutenant governor of Arkansas, but he had been the lead opposition researcher for the Bush reelection campaign in 2004. And I must say, a, a frequent source of mine for problems about John Kerry's biography. And that's the kind of thing that they, they put him in the U.S. attorney's job in the wake of that. All right. It's time now for our sidebar feature where we take a moment to explain certain terms and relationships that come up repeatedly in 
the not just our show, but generally, but people don't necessarily have a chance to stand back and explain. We're kind of back in prosecution land in the bread and butter of U.S. attorney's offices. So appropriately, we're going to explain the concept well known to, well, probably everyone here of a queen for a day. That is the ability of a putative defendant to come in and give it all up to the federal prosecutors with the promise that it won't be used against her or him but in an attempt typically to talk the office out of charging. And to do that, we're pleased to welcome Morgan Fairchild, the celebrated star of stage and screen, Dallas, Flamingo Road, Murphy Brown, for which she had a Emmy nomination most recently, if you didn't catch this, Todd, on The Simpsons. And she's done all this great work for AIDS awareness and environmental protection. So she's going to explain the Queen for a Day concept And uh, we'll be right back. What is a queen for a day proffer? The ability to make a plea deal based on a witness's cooperation is an important tool to a federal prosecutor and prospective defendant alike. A proffer session is an initial step prosecutors often take when deciding whether someone's cooperation is useful enough to warrant a deal. In these sessions, witnesses typically indicate the information they have that the government can use against others. Those sessions often are governed by an agreement between the government and the witness, detailed in a so-called proffer agreement, or queen for a day letter. It's called a queen for a day letter after a weekly television show popular in the late 1950s and early 1960s, in which contestants attempted to capture audience sympathy and applause with tragic personal narratives. Now, in the show, the contestant whose story garnered the most applause was crowned queen for the day, gifted a household appliance, and sent on her way. The remaining contestants went home empty-handed, having aired their dirty laundry for nothing. In general, the immunity provides assurances to the witness that the statements made during the session won't be used against him. The prosecutor gets the opportunity to evaluate the information and the credibility of the potential witness. This immunity is subject to important limitations. Most important, if the witness lies during the session, the deal is off and the prosecutor has free reign not only to use the witness's testimony against him, but also to charge him with the crime of lying to federal officers. Second, queen for a day immunity is a type of use immunity. Use immunity only prevents the government from particular agreed upon uses of those statements. Queen for a day immunity only protects against direct use. That is, a prosecutor telling a jury or grand jury what the witness said in a proper session. So if a witness tells prosecutors, hey, Harry and I robbed the bank, the government cannot tell a jury that the witness admitted to robbing the bank in the proper session. However, under the terms of a standard queen for a day letter, the government may make what's called derivative use of the proffering individual's statements. This means that prosecutors can follow up on the statements made in the session and turn up additional information that can be used to indict and convict the potential witness. 
For example, now that the government knows the individual robbed that bank, they can ask Harry to tell the jury what happened. When people think of immunity, they usually think of the government promising not to prosecute someone in exchange for valuable testimony. This is called transactional immunity because it is offered in exchange for something. In practice, prosecutors very rarely offer transactional immunity to potential witnesses. Given the limited nature of the immunity provided in Queen for a Day agreements, many prospective defendants agree to proffer sessions only when they believe they are facing imminent prosecution and believe that a proffer session is their last chance to obtain a plea deal. For Talking Feds, I'm Morgan Fairchild. Thank you very much, Morgan Fairchild. We've had several references to the Craven might be the fair word, a response of the Republicans, not just an impeachment, but there was an almost comic series of quick reactions to the Stone episode where they were looking for the nearest rock to crawl (laughs) under, you know, having put everything on the line for the president. He starts in again. You mentioned Susan Collins. You know, you almost sort of feel bad for them, but this is the absence of any strength or moral force at all on the on the part of the republicans is is a really big part of the story of how trump's been getting away with everything no Uh, absolutely i think when history looks at what happened here their impeachment power uh, actually did work as intended in the house of representatives Uh, what did not work was the removal power in the senate and that's because you really had a complete not just lack of courage, but just completely bowing down, kneeling before Donald Trump. I don't think the framers had quite envisioned that scenario happening. And because we basically had the Senate Republicans enabling everything this president has ever done, you get this result where you have an absurd trial with no documents and no witnesses and a predetermined conclusion. And I think the American people uh, saw what happened, and I believe the Republicans will be punished at the ballot box this November. I mean, we'll see. And it did seem sort of shameful, but why were the Republicans? Is it something super unusual? Well, I think you can. I think what was so striking to me in covering the trial was you can stipulate that the outcome was foreordained because of the political loyalties that the Republicans were. You're not going to get 67 votes to convict the president, and that's I think everyone knew that. This the House knew that going in. But what was surprising to me was that the Senate, which is fiercely and famously proud of its own prerogatives, its own powers, uh, you know, as of oversight and being the saucer that cools the, the drink that Mitch McConnell turned the Senate's institutional duties almost on its head. And instead of saying, we're standing up to the executive and we may acquit you, but we're going to make you defend yourself in every jot and tittle of the thing. It was almost as if the majority leader was taking, you know, a a car hop in the drive-in, taking orders from the president, what do you want with his fries? It was so supine in terms of the Senate's institutional standing. And I think that's something that will probably haunt the Senate going forward, whoever's the president, whatever party's in charge. And haunt because you think the Senate's powers have somehow been there. I mean, it's a funny thing 
they were, of course, putting party over country, but they were also putting executive power over legislative power. I mean, in some ways, they were, you know, weakening themselves. Do you think that kind of goes forward now? I think that's really a problem. I mean, Congressman would know better than I about the institutional dynamics. But to me, as a as a watcher of the Senate for the past 30 years, that was a striking surrender of, of its own institutional power. Todd, do you think that's because the president so berated and tamed Mitch McConnell early in his presidency that Mitch McConnell just sort of said, well, you know, I want to hold on to who I am and my legacy, and I can be sort of the super god of the Senate by doing his bidding. Is there that personal dimension? I think somewhat, but I think McConnell also is a very canny counter, and I think he thought that he could keep the 53 votes of his caucus, and he wants to be majority leader. He doesn't want to be in the minority. So I think the one thing that would have moved him is if he really thought those senators like Cory Gardner and Susan Collins and so on, that, that if he thought the public was against the president enough that he could lose the Senate majority, then I guarantee you we would have had witnesses and a multi-week trial and documents and a much longer, more serious consideration of the issue, even if it had ultimately ended in acquittal. But at the end of the day, I guess he just felt that he did not, that was not a risk for him and he could he could maintain his... Look what he did in the case of Merrick Garland. That's the most violent upending of norms that we've seen in our lifetime. But I want to ask the real question about the big risk, which is, as Adam Schiff said during the hearing, the truth will come out. And so presumably, um, that's the thought about John Bolton making statements and others. And then I start to worry, how will that be shut down by the executive branch and how the Justice Department will Congress be able to do anything to let that truth come out? A poison dagger tip, maybe? Russian style? So it's true the truth is going to come out. I think the reason Mitch McConnell acted the way he did is because he has his own election coming up. I think what Mitt Romney did was amazing, incredibly courageous. I think it was also somewhat easier for Mitt Romney because his next election is about five years. And so Mitch McConnell understands that at the very least, you have to keep your base when you go into an election. And I think that's why Mitch McConnell was completely acting uh, the way he was in order to keep the base with him. I think that's why you saw Susan Collins do what she did. She knows she has to keep her base from deserting her. And I think a lot of this can be just be explained by electoral politics when you look at how some of these Republican senators voted because they're first and foremost scared of their base rebelling against them. All right. Let's let's point toward the future now and go back to the vigorous, morally courageous House of Congress. And um, so back in the House of Representatives, it does seem like as you put it in contrasting with what Collins had to say, that, that the president really does believe he can do whatever and do it openly and notoriously. And the House is in a little bit of a tricky position, right? I mean, if they take the Stone uh, debacle and other things like that, that would maybe be a normal situation for investigation. But is there some worry about investigation fatigue, people turning against the Democrats? Let me try to start with you on this again, Congressman, you know the most, but I, we should all kind of weigh in. What do you really expect will be the degree of sort of vigor right. House oversight in the next eight right. months? So Congress does oversight. That's one of our functions. We've been doing oversight when impeachment was never on the radar. We did oversight during impeachment and other matters. We're doing oversight both before and after impeachment. It's just going to continue. I think it's even more important now because it really is now up to the American people in November to hold the president accountable. And my view is we have to give American people the information on which they can make 
appropriate decisions. And so if there's crazy others, things do happening on your side, yeah. have a different view or are people, you know, too sincerely would want to investigate. Are they nervous now that right. the American people are going to see the Dems as just one trick ponies? Well, so before impeachment was on the radar screen, we were still talking about health care infrastructure, right. getting rid of corruption. We've been talking about that for the last three years. And we're going to continue to talk about the bills we've passed. We've passed over 400 bills to U.S. Senate, over 275 bipartisan. Uh, unfortunately, the Republican Senate is sitting on many of these bills, even though uh, they would pass if they uh, came up for a vote. So we're going to continue to talk about those issues. At the same time, we're just going to keep on doing oversight, as we always have done. I think the unanswered question at the moment, and the congressman referenced it a while ago, is whether the accumulation of all the stuff that has been brought out about the president and all the stuff that will continue to emerge, whether John Bolton's book is published or whatever happens, we, we see day by day by day, there are documents, there are FOIA requests by independent uh, entities. The truth will emerge, as, is, as Walter Lippmann said. So will this just be a heavy weight on the president going into the election in the fall? And will people, swing voters, say, enough, we can't take four more years of this? I, I think the jury's out on that, but that is the question that I think m- most people want. And you see, you see Congress continuing to investigate, having hearings, bringing, you know, wh- once the subpoena battles play out, Perhaps McGahn is called to testify, et cetera. You see a vigorous kind of PERMA investigation. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Congressman, but it seems to me that there there would be no backing away from it now. I mean, the the fat's in the fire and there's way too much stuff there to to pursue. I don't think the Congress wants to look gratuitous. They don't want to look like this is all they think about. But I think if, for example, the courts rule in favor of uh, enforcing those subpoenas, I can't imagine that the people wouldn't be sought to come testify. And, And I agree with Todd. I mean, there are factors that we don't know the timing of. And we don't know what the results are. If the court says these subpoenas are good, then I think that opens the door and the American public very much would want to see the hearings on that. I think that the Republicans' game will be to delay, to appeal to a higher court and try to prevent that from happening. Schiff previewed that. But I think there will be lots of opportunities to say the information that everybody wanted is here now. So why won't they let us have the hearings? What are they going to criticize on a hearing where they said, wait for the information? Okay. I can think of a lot of follow-up here, but I can also, I think the lesson of last week, these issues are not going away. I'd like to take advantage of the fact that we have with us not just a member of Congress, but a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee to take a little bit of a turn here and bring up the kind of momentous vote uh, that occurred yesterday in the Senate when, well, Congressman, could I ask you to kind of get, tell the listeners a little bit what happened and what you see happening next in the House? Of course. Uh, so there is currently no authorization for the use of military force to go after Iran. There's only two existing AUMFs out there. One is to go after terrorists linked to 9-11. The other is to uh, conduct operations in Iraq. And those, those are 2001 and 2002, respectively. I mean, right? Those that, are- that is correct. And so the administration really had no authority to go and target and kill Soleimani, who was an Iranian general and also an Iranian political leader. And both houses of Congress have looked at this and realized what the president did was unconstitutional because only Congress has the power to declare war. So the House passed a war powers resolution 
and then the Senate recently did, and that was significant because this is a Republican-controlled Senate. So now you have both houses telling the president that what he did was unconstitutional, and he was going to do that again. He needs to come and get approval from Congress before he can act. Which is a really dramatic departure from congressional action in the wake of previous military conduct by the president. There's tended to be a quick rubber stamp. So at least in the foreign affairs area, this is, it's almost equivalent to what, you know, in a parliamentary system would be a vote of no confidence, right? Well, I do think it keeps the American public focused on really important issues, which is how did people feel when they heard that that assassination had taken place and we were, people thought, maybe on the brink of war? And so whatever people got worn out by the impeachment hearing, I don't think that wore them out. It just scared the living heck out of them. No. And the only thing I would note is that important as those resolution, the resolution was, in neither house did it pass by a veto-proof majority, so the president will probably he's threatened right. to Right. He'll veto and it so. won't have. So it'll, but it will serve as a kind of— A marker. Yeah. A marker, a rebuke, and as uh, Laurie says, a kind of bringing of attention to the ham hand, I mean, we have not had a very smooth foreign policy operation right. in the Trump White House, and now he's it's sort of on him if he blunders. And Harry, you mentioned whether there's an exhaustion among the American public about the investigation into individual cases and the impeachment. This is categorically different. This is the American public saying, are we going to be safe, or where is this guy leading us, and why isn't he taking the direction from our representatives that we've elected in Congress? They have a voice. We'd rather have them have some say in whether we go to war. It's also uh, not lost on senators and members of Congress that Trump's impulsive actions have made us less safe. We have now dozens of American service members with traumatic head injuries because of the ballistic missile attacks from Iran uh, that were caused by the Soleimani killing. Uh, you now have Iraq voting to kick U.S. troops out of the country of Iraq. These are goals that Iran wanted to have happen. And so uh, you now have Congress going, whoa, uh, where did this strike come from? There was no authority for it, and you made us less safe. We're now going to take legislative action to tell you, Mr. President, to not do this again. Yeah, and in contrast to their general cowardice in, in other areas, they're really saying, okay, war and peace, you know, we <laughs> better come to the House, uh, as it were, the, that, that is the Congress. Man, what a week, and, uh, you know, more, more to come. We, uh, we're just about out of time, and so we're going to go to the final feature of Talking Feds, where we take a question from a listener, and everyone here, the Feds have to answer in five words or fewer. And so the question is whether today, from Twitter, is there any hope, basically, that anything, investigations, public protests, widespread condemnation, anything, will in any way change uh, the behavior of the president? Five words or fewer. Let's see. That's a tough one. That's four (laughs) words. Uh, But is there hope? The problem, if I can just say this, (laughs) changing the conduct of the president (laughs) is, then I would answer that, no, not a lot of hope. If it's changing what happens, then I would answer Yes, because of career dedicated prosecutors. Right. So, I mean, maybe changing the the dynamic, say, with the Department of Justice and the like. Right. Yeah. When in doubt, I look to Broadway for answers. You got to have hope. <laughs> <laughs> got hope? 
November is coming. (laughs) (laughs) The the hope is the ballot box. All right. Um, Thank you very much, Lori, Todd, and especially to Congressman Ted Lieu for bringing us into your office and participating in another Talking Feds. Thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal or political system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, Rebecca Lopatin, and Jenny Josephson. David Lieberman and Rosie Griffin are our contributing writers, Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Special thanks to Morgan Fairchild for today's sidebar. And thanks as always to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.